I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's go. Let's do it. Dude, how you doing, man? Good, and you? Yeah, cannot complain. Cannot complain. I already know that I'm going to title this episode uh, Bible Studies with Surfers in Australia or something <laughs> something to that effect. Because when you were telling me um, that story, I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. We, we got to sit down and, and have a chat about that. Uh-huh. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. So um, do you want to... For people who don't know, do you want to just give a quick biopsy? Biopsy. Biography. Not a biopsy. <laughs> do you want to give a quick biopsy? I knew what you meant. <laughs> it's early. It's yeah. early. Yeah, we got up pretty early to get this done because both of us have uh, have papers we have to write. So, yeah. Yeah. Talk uh, to me about yourself. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. I uh, grew up in uh, just north of Atlanta in a t- uh, town called Gainesville, Georgia. Um, it's... Um, grew up with two Christian parents and, uh, you know, always went to church on Sunday mornings, kind of your typical Southern story. <laughs> and um, I would definitely say like when I was around like 14, I was kind of getting to the point where um, I was really wrestling with my faith. I had a close friend that died and it really kind of just shattered what little faith I already had. And uh, um, so I, I guess you can say I kind of became an atheist at the time and then um, kind of, you know, did the whole, you know, high school party thing and then went to college, ended up getting kicked out of college my first go around. And uh, then um, when I about the age I was 21, Jesus kind of came in, wrecked my life. And uh, um, shortly after that, I got into mission work. Um, and kind of rewind a little bit back, um, part of one of the reasons why I wanted to get into mission works because I went to Kenya on a short-term mission trip, and it was kind of like my come-to-Jesus trip that my parents sent me on. And I kind of went as an atheist and came back agnostic um, because the stuff I saw there, you can't really see human suffering um, to that level and not want to do something. And then when you see the hope that the people there is rooted in their faith in Jesus, um, it truly, uh, it it messed up with a lot of the categories I had. Hmm. And um, so when I came back, I wanted to do humanitarian work originally. Uh, Christianity never really popped in my mind, never really um, would say it was my pure motivator uh, and wanted to do humanitarian work. It was really kind of like a sense I wanted to feel good about myself, wanted to kind of atone for sins. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, and of course, when, um, when it was really the gospel that was displayed to me through my parents and shared to me by my parents, and, and it was really like one of the lowest points in my life. And then I just remember saying, like, Jesus, if you're real, change me because I can't change myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember that was kind of the moment of my conversion and then I remember walking downstairs the next morning, and I said to my dad, um, hey, I think I'm a Christian now. I don't know how this looks or how this works, but I can't do it with the friends I have. Can I have yours? <laughs> so literally, I uh, um, just ended up getting poured into by these 
older, wiser, godlier men in his small group and guys that he would ride bikes with. And um, that was kind of what got me on the path to missions. And um, it was uh, went off to do like a, a six-month YWAM kind of school. I had no idea what YWAM was. Uh, for those who are listening, I have no idea what YWAM is. Um, it's Youth with a Mission. It's like a parachurch organization that if you are young, don't have a seminary degree, but you want to do missions, it's kind of like a school that tries to train you for about six, I think it's three months of a DTS, yeah, three months DTS, and then three months discipleship training school. In Christianity, we love acronyms. So, Obviously, though, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you do discipleship training school, which is kind of like you learn how to share your faith, learn how to read the Bible, and then you go overseas for three months. And my three months, because I went to Kenya in that first trip, I wanted to go back to Africa. And I'm going to South Africa, which for those who are listening that knows the kind of demographics of Kenya and South Africa, they're very different, (laughs) (laughs) to say the least. And um, when I was there, um, we were in Cape Town, and there was a uh, small township, and I think someone told me it's like the southernmost township in um, the Cape. Um, south of Cape Town, it was called the Red Hill Township, and I was helping uh, a guy do some gardening outside, and he said, uh, hey, you know, you're just like every other missionary that comes through here, and it wasn't a positive tone the way how I had delivered it, <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, why? And he said, because you come here, and you tell us Jesus loves us, and you love us, but when you leave, we never hear from you or see you ever again, mm. and after that, I just got so convicted uh, that I ended up moving there. And um, there was an organization that we worked with. It was called. Uh, um, actually, I probably won't give it just to you know. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Just to kind of uh, you know, not name the guilty, um, but it was a surfing and soccer ministry, and I ended up working on the surfing side of the ministry, and. Um, what well, I can call it a ministry. It was more like a volunteer uh, platform or anything else. But um, it uh, pretty much ended up going there working for this woman and uh, ended up working for a lot of different reasons than what I, I think she had expectations for me to do. And, um, and pretty much... Uh, ended up falling through after like three months and these two local surfers named uh uh jonathan and david uh they kind of just took me in and uh the two surfers were named jonathan and david yeah oh forgive me joshua joshua Joshua. yeah yeah joshua and david gotcha and uh they just took me in and said like hey you're not the first person she's done this to (laughs) and uh but we've been praying to god asking god to give us somebody to get, like lead these Bible studies for surfers hmm. in uh, the Cape Town area and what, and asked if I was interested in it. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and that sounds like, um, it sounds amazing. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into it. Crazy. Yeah. And so that kickstarted like a year for you or so of, of like I'm focusing in on the, uh, now did I say Australia in, when I first said it or did I say Africa? 
Africa. It is yeah. Africa. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, that that's just like a a hilarious soundbite to me that you were doing Bible studies with surfers in yeah. Africa. Um, and you did that for how long? Uh, for about a year. Um, and so pretty much what would happen is that we would go out and um, obviously go surf with all these guys. Mm. And thankfully, my surfing skills at the time, I have no idea what they are now because I've been living landlocked for the last three years. So <laughs> it's just been, um, you know, who. and the last time I could go surfing, I had a dislocated shoulder. But um, yeah, uh, they were good enough to where that if I said something, it had enough weight to where, you know, they would listen to me. Right. And um, it, it's just like anything in life, you know, if you're not that good in something and um, and you wanted to kind of convey like a worldview or persuade them into something, if you're not good at it, they're not going to listen to you. They're yeah. like, if you're not good in this, how much worse are you at this? <laughs> hmm. And um, and so thankfully, um, it was, uh, you know, I wasn't no pro by any stretch, but it, it, I was good enough to earn the respect of those around. Hmm. And, um, and we would just kind of share the gospel with them and say like, hey, we're doing this Bible study at their house, and we'll just tell them where it is. And at one point, we had like 20 surfers in their house. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And uh, and just to let you guys know, I did not have any like really formal Bible training at the time, <laughs> so I still have no idea really like how good these teachings were. <laughs> but um, like it was pretty much um, we. The only way I knew was just kind of like reading through a book of the Bible, and then we'll just like read through it, and then we'll discuss it, and just keep reading, discuss it, and then keep reading. And yeah. so I, I went to a topical church, um, a North Point Community Church. So that was the only church background I really had as a Christian, and I wasn't smart enough or creative enough to kind of come up with a creative sir, like you know these like creative teachings. I was just kind of like, all right, here's the Gospel of John. You know how how can I? You know it's going to be hard for me to screw this up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so that was kind of how it would go. So when you guys were there, did you stay stationary in the one place, or did you guys travel while you're doing the Bible studies? Uh, we traveled around. Um, it, it was kind of funny because like when we would travel, we would all cram into like this Volkswagen Rabbit, and you had like these five dudes, and we're not small. <laughs> and we would um, really take the entire passenger seat down and put our surfboards, slide our surfboards in the passenger seat. And then we will somehow miraculously fit three dudes um, in the back seat. And because I was the American, they always shoved me in the trunk. <laughs> and so if you know what a Volkswagen Rabbit is, it, you, it's very hard to fit an adult in the back. So it was just like... You know, if you're claustrophobic, if this wasn't your ride. Wait, you would go in the trunk? Yeah. Well, it's like it's like a hatchback. Okay. And so, but it was very, very cramped. Like, it's just big enough to fit a human in the back. <laughs> How long would you travel like that? Sometimes two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went up to, like, Elands Bay, which is, like, northwest of South Africa, Um and it's if for surfers, if you know, like it's like one of the best, like, um, le- like left pointing surf waves in South Africa. And then we would go to Jeffrey's Bay, which is a legendary surf spot. The mm-hmm. um, the world surfing circuit goes through there every year, right? Um, and 
Yeah, it was absolutely terrifying <laughs> my first time because uh, there's two different parts. You got like Jeffrey's Bay, which is kind of like the main beach. And then you had Super Tubes, which was kind of like you got to walk, you know, a little bit further west. And then you like you just stand there and you see these three huge walls of water just facing you. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world am I going to get out there? <laughs> yeah. Especially when um, it's not, you know, you didn't grow up there. So literally, I'm just staring at every other surfer and, like, and just mimicking every move that they make. And so that's how I survived it. But it was it was cool, though. I did a, a bit of surfing in Florida, mm-hmm. um, a little bit in Australia, but that was young, I was younger. But I did some in Florida and... I was like, hey, I'm, I'm probably going to be decent at this because, you know, I, I do a lot of longboarding, skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing. It's like another board. Mm-hmm. I sucked. <laughs> Just ate surf like the entire time. I don't I think I got up once for like a, a shaky half second. <laughs> did so you, that was humbling. Did you try to start with a short board? Um, I forget the guy, the guy who um, the guy who set me up, uh, Eric Watkins. He's a guy I should have on here. He's a, <laughs> no, he's a really rad dude. He uh, he was a, um, I think OPC pastor in Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, he loved surfing. So he set me up with what he uh, estimated would be a really good beginner setup. So yeah, I, I think he did well by me. I just think I'm terrible at surfing. <laughs> I mean, the hardest thing with surfing is when I would teach people it. For most of them, it wasn't necessarily standing up. It was always just being able to judge when to catch the wave. Yeah. And um, like I grew up, I never grew up surfing. Um, Me and my family, like we would go to Florida every year and they would give us like, you know, the boogie boards that you could buy from a gas station. And we, and I was always trying to turn into a surfboard, but never really, you know, Mm -hmm. when you weigh 130 pounds in seventh grade, there's no way you're going to make that thing float. And so it was, you know, (laughs) physics was not on my side. And uh, it really wasn't until I went to, when I moved to Hawaii, uh, when I was in YWAM. And uh, and anyone knows anything about the big island, it's not necessarily known for their surfing as much as their just geography. And so to find a surfing spot was really hard. But when you did find it, it was awesome. And uh, because I was stubborn and prideful, I did not go through like an actual surfing coach the way you should. (laughs) And so literally how I learned to surf is I went on YouTube and I watched a bunch of Kelly Slater videos. Dude, that guy's insane. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Just the greatest surfer ever. That's like learning how to play golf by watching Tiger Woods <laughs> and then just like going to your local golf course and just thinking, Oh, I could just swing this club and go. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I just got absolutely eaten up. Like there's a thing about Hawaii waves. Um, at least for the most part, the good ones, they're usually either rock shelves or reefs. And those are the least forgiving places to learn how to surf. Um, so if you're listening, want to learn how to surf and you're near a rock shelf or a reef break, um, try to find a beach. <laughs> why are, why are they, why are they, uh, not forgiving? Because when you fall, you're not landing in sand. If it's shallow, you're landing on literally this pretty yeah. much this concrete slab with broken glass and the wave just drags you mercilessly across it. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just the worst road rash you'll get. Yeah. It's interesting because I've, um, well, I mean, I 
obviously was born in New Zealand, so I had a bit of exposure to the ocean. Oh seas, yeah, but I'm very so little, <laughs> very very little, right? So I've spent the majority of my time growing up um, by lakes. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's just my association with bodies of water is not violent. It's just a <laughs> lake, and it always impresses me when I go to a sea or an ocean, and I'm mm-hmm. like, good night. There's so much power oh, in yeah. the water here, and and just swimming in there too. Like you can be picked up and smashed um, effortlessly. Oh, absolutely. And and just bringing that up, you know, with all the power that the ocean gives, it's very hard to find an atheist surfer mm. um, because a lot of them, especially the ones that I've met, and this is not just in South Africa, but whether I was in Bali or Mexico or um, uh, Peru, it was always kind of like they had such respect for nature that they almost would, you unif- know, like, uniformly deify nature because it has so much power and everything else. And especially when you talk to native peoples that, um, you know, they got their whole source of their life came from the ocean, whether it was food or whatever it, it, it you pretty much saw the ocean as kind of like God himself and, or a God in itself. Um, and so it was very common to meet surfers that were spiritual but not religious, which is kind of your common city goer yeah. <laughs> now in the yeah. West. And um, but it was very it was so there, therefore it wasn't really like part of my apologetic was never trying to convince them there was a God, but rather it was kind of hone their worship to the God of the Bible, and and so it was more of um, saying that you know yes. You know, there is power in the ocean. Yes, we have to respect it. Um, even the Jewish people in the Old Testament saw the seas as like this aboding um, just presence. And, you know, even though they never worshiped the ocean, <laughs> to my knowledge, they worshiped everything else. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, at, at some uh, point, right? Yeah, exactly. But they always saw the seas as like this rough judgment of God. And, and of course, when you go back to the flood of Noah, they picked on that too. Um, and that's one of the reasons why in Revelation, when it says like there's no sea and then you have no new heavens and new earth, it's not, I don't think that technically means that there's no actually body of water and then you have new earth. I think it just means there's no presence of God's judgment. Yeah. And then you have this new earth. And so it's um, God's judgment and, uh, and like the chaos waters. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that's complete, utter control of God over yeah. everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and like you said, the judgment is, is gone. Yeah. It's such a cool theme too. Like, mm-hmm. It is. It really is. And um, and so, yeah. And so therefore it was uh, – and, and of course, I, I, I couldn't say like um, to my knowledge, like, you know, how many of these surfers truly converted. I, I mean, only God knows to this day. Um, I'll definitely say that they were very open and very – receptive um but uh yeah yeah who knows so (laughs) what was that what was that walk me through kind of what a day would look like i'm just interested in the surfing thing obviously there's so many different missions stuff you've done yeah so i don't want to belabor the point but the surfing one is just Uh it's a fun little 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 section so when you roll up um, Mm -hmm. in your little little rabbit what would a day look like like how would you how would you guys like prayerfully think through what you would be doing for the day 
Yeah. And those, what would those conversations be like? Uh, the first thing we would do is we would wake up, and I am not a morning person at all, so the fact I'm waking up this morning was a miracle in itself. We'd wake up around like 4.30, in the mo- 4.35 in the morning, and the first thing we'd do is we'll check the swells and see where the best surfing spots were in the area. Um, the thing about... And you check the swells um, online, I guess? Yeah. Okay. There's like a website that you can just pull up. Um and really, we're checking like wind directions. We're checking like swells. We're looking at like the wave graph that will kind of say like, "Hey, we're predicting it to be at least three, four, five, six feet today." <clears throat> and then, really, we just kind of go through and say, like, "Okay, this is going to be the best spots to surf." And so, contrary to what a lot of people think about surfers, <laughs> it's like, "Oh, you just wake up and you just roll out of bed and you just go, and the waves are there." You. Which some places in the world, yeah, you know, there's more frequency than others, but you, you gotta look for. I mean, it's literally a, you know, there's a lot that goes behind it, <laughs> like finding the perfect waves to go surf, and so um, we would pick our spot. Then we would um, obviously, you know, pray and ask for God's guidance and to conversations, and then um, we would, you know, get in the rabbit, go to. Uh, the beach that we would pick and then um and then we would just they had they they were very well known surfers in the especially in the Cape Town area and so it was very easy for them to break the ice for me. I never really had to but the fact that I was a foreigner and I had a strange southern accent to them, uh it kinda helped <laughs> yeah. open up in conversations, which I, I don't think I, I think my accent is slowly leaving. Um which in my mind I'm thinking praise God because I mean it's my English teachers did their job, but uh, um, um, anyways, but then we would go out and surf and then we'll come back in start talking and then uh, we would either go out to eat have a beer or two you know sorry Baptists and uh, uh, and then we would just start talking sharing life stories and stuff like that. Um, and sometimes because it, like we would go to like parties and stuff like that, and uh, and that and because that was my background, you know, in high school and college, it was a atmosphere I felt comfortable in, and so it was just easy for me to talk and um, share the gospel in those areas. Um, so like some I'll give you an example, like it, the, the taboo of Christians drinking. It's not anything new. It's across cultures and oceans, um, which I always say is not drinking that's a sin. It's the drunkenness and yeah. the overindulgence of it. And I remember being in a circle of these guys that were going to be future lawyers and teachers and professors in South Africa. And they were asking me, and they said, um, you know, so you're a missionary and you're having a beer with us. We, you know, we know we think that's cool, but you know they were kind of testing me, making sure I wasn't a sellout, which mm. um, which I respected. And and I said, you know, well, you know, and I explained to them and showed them the Bible that you know wasn't drinking this a sin, but drunkenness is uniformly condemned in both Old and New Testaments. But and I just remember just the Holy Spirit kind of gave me like a spark, <laughs> genius in the moment. And I just said, you know, just think through your five biggest regrets in your life. 
And then I just paused and let them think about it. I said, was not alcohol involved in all of them? <laughs> and if, if at least three out of the five, and they all kind of slowly nod their heads. And I said, that's what God is trying to spare you from. Huh. Yeah, eh? Yeah. And so it was because you know the guilt and the shame that comes when you act in ways that, you know, uh, I like the way how Tim Keller put it in one of his sermons about, you know, not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not so much like how much you can alcohol you consume is how much the alcohol consumes you mm. and how much the alcohol controls you. Yeah. And in the same way with the Holy Spirit, it's not so much of the Holy Spirit you have is the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not like this substance that we can have more or less of. It's how much the Holy Spirit has control of you. And that was kind of what I was sharing with them. It's saying it's like once you cross that line, you're, it's, you're, it really, in some ways, it brings the true you out. And, and a lot of us are really embarrassed when that happens. Or at worst, it, like, it brings the worst side of you out. And so, yeah, and... And I was just saying that that's who God is trying to spare you from becoming. Yeah, that's uh, that's thoughtful. Thank you. <laughs> I um, I've said a few times that I think alcohol and Buddhism go well together. <laughs> yeah, um, and that was more just uh, from from experiences in advertising, where mm-hmm. it's sort of that same thing, that kind of spiritualness that a lot of uh, people I knew, coworkers, um, classmates they kind of needed some level of spirituality so mm. they'd pick some sort of quasi eastern religion yeah you know i think you know whatever some some pantheistic nonsense <laughs> and then um but they would also get smashed all the time mm. and it was very interesting for me spending a long time with those people um and learning like getting really close to them too and being and just kind of being like Huh. As a Christian, I can see you're hiding from so much mm. with this alcoholism. And you're basically using alcohol and like, you know, spirituality as your kind of patch when you're drunk, patch when you're sober to try and fight off existential dread. Yeah. It's kind of the main thing. And yeah. and as Christians, hopefully, geez, you shouldn't have to fight off existential <laughs> dread. You should have a whole bunch of existential hope. You yeah. know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I could just think like a Pentecost. Why a lot of people would have thought that the like the disciples were drunk because oh, they were just forty days away from watching their leader getting crucified. Well, they weren't there. They you know mm-hmm. left. <laughs> so just that's just compounding guilt. And you know, and a lot of them weren't you know witnesses to the resurrection like the five hundred others that. Obviously, Paul brings up later, yeah. But it, it, and of course, Peter's like, uh, you know, we're not drunk as me. You assume it's only nine in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> and I always just thought to myself, I was like, uh, hopefully, you know, you weren't drunk after nine, but <laughs> that wasn't the point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, bring me back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You you had this this comment where you said that uh, I think you're 21 when. Uh, God ruined your life, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's hilarious because that resonates with me a lot. Um, and that's a phrase I, I like to say that God backhanded me into a ditch, um, and I say that with with absolute love because that's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. And I, I assume mm-hmm. your story is similar, absolutely. Um, yeah. But 
I want you to, can you, can you talk to me about that? Cause you know, God ruining your life is, is probably something that needs a bit more explanation. Yeah. Um, really what happened was, um, I'm trying to think about how I can share this. <laughs> um, pretty much, uh, I got a phone call, uh, from a girl that, um, like we dated on and off in college and, uh, and of course she gives me the groundbreaking uh, statement, hey, I'm pregnant with your kid. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. Um, and so uh, embarrassingly, I did not react well. Um, and uh, to this day, I, and to be honest with you, it's like um, at first, for the first, I would say, seven years of my Christian walk, I lived with the assumption that she had an abortion and I, you know, lived with that guilt for, and then like I was talking, sharing my story with somebody and they were like, well, girls will say that to guys, you know, the, you know, trick them and just keep dating them. And, you know, to this day, to be honest, I, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure whether it happened or not, but that was the event that God used to rock me. Mm. Um, and I just absolutely, you know, dove into uh, a really deep black hole of depression, um, was suicidal at times. And literally the night that my parents, um, like called me home because I wasn't on speaking terms with my parents at this time. And, um, and a lot of it had to do with like my own guilt because I never, and, and it was a lot of because of my rebellion, uh, as well. Um, but I, I would say that, um, when they asked me to come home, it just kind of shocked me a little bit. Cause I was like, why would you want me to come home? And like after all the things I put you through, and this is kind of the exclamation mark of everything that you told me, you, everything you never wanted me to become, I've become. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just remember coming home, just kind of thinking, well, I, I was going home to like, in an essence, tell them goodbye, and then, and you know, <laughs> do you know, end my life later, and. Um, so when I went there, uh, I saw my parents and I just collapsed and just sobbed. And I just said, you know, if you took everything from me and, you know, I wouldn't blame you for a second. And I just remember my dad picking me up saying, son, there's nothing in this world to make me love you less than I do right now, but I forgive you. Your mother forgives you. And we know that Jesus will forgive you, but you have to go to him yourself because we can't do that for you. And that was kind of what God used to soften my heart enough to say, like, Jesus, if you're real, change me, because I can't change myself. And that was the moment. It was the worst and best moment in my life, for sure. Um, But like I said, like, even if, you know, by God's grace, it didn't happen, the abortion never happened, um, it still doesn't change what God did for me that night. Hmm. And even if it is true, 
then, you know, I know God's grace is sufficient. And, um, and I know, you know, there's those listening that might have resonate exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm a living example that, you know, there is redemption for you. There's redemption offered. And so I'd encourage you to take it. <laughs> Amen. Thanks for sharing yeah. that, man. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, God is good. Yeah, amen. And so, but, yeah, it, it uh, yeah, God saves the world, you know. <laughs> you know, like Jesus told uh, the Pharisees, and I didn't came to save the righteous, but the sinners. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Yeah, exactly. And I remember reading that in Matthew 9 for the first time, and it was just like a a wave of hope just overwhelmed me. Hmm. And um, and I just remember just thinking, I mean, I've thought this my entire Christian life because my Christian life has been anything but pretty, <laughs> if I'm honest. Hmm. Because it's like, it wasn't like I pulled up my life by my bootstraps and then all of a sudden, like, you know, I have this like crystal clear Christian life. And I mean... When Romans 8 talks about the war between our sinful flesh and the spirit, <laughs> I feel that every single day. And there are moments of like lapse and falling back into old patterns and doubts and stuff like that. But, you know, it, but when Paul says that, you know, uh, you know, walk out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's not you doing the work, but the Holy Spirit doing the work in you. Mm. <laughs> it, like it, when I say I'm a product of the Holy Spirit, it's not me saying like some spiritual jargon or, you know, it, it literally is like if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, I would not be where I'm at <laughs> in this room. Yeah. Um, and so it's, um, you know, I'm, I know I'm on the progress of sanctification like everyone else, but it's definitely, it's uh, it's not a straight path <laughs> at all. So, yeah, it, you're going to have your struggles and your doubts, but, you know, God is sufficient in, to get you through it. So, yeah. I'm glad. I thank you for telling the story. Yeah. Because I think there's there's something about a bunch of, people walking around a nice seminary with a bunch of books in their bag Mm -hmm. that can be a bit deceptive. Mm -hmm. You don't know where people have come from, where we've been and what we're going through. Yeah. And I think, and this is true. This is true in every Christian culture. And it's, it's kind of a good truth. We want to be good. We want to display like righteousness and virtue. Exactly. the, The problem with that can be is sometimes we forget that we struggle with things or have been through things that are just, you know, not what you'd see on a classy Sunday morning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not, I try to be, you know, the same guy like you would see on Sunday morning and, you know, on Wednesday Mm -hmm. night and Friday night and Saturday night. And so it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, with the new heart, you know, that the Holy Spirit gives us and to obey and love the laws of God, which that we would all hate and run from. It, it's still, it's, 
you know, the old man is still there. <laughs> mm. And, and so it's, and it's in, like in, like you said, like even in seminaries, whether, it, or even in churches or whatever, um, and I would just say like the most proud Christians are the least introspective ones. Mm. Um, they haven't in, in, it's just like, you know, the more you spend time in the Bible, the more you spend time in theology as speech, like speaking for myself, the, you know, the more holy I want to become and the less holy I realize I am. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so it's like when you constantly look in the mirror, like James says, it's just if you walk away with your chest out and your, you know, head up, it's, and it's in you deceiving yourself, thinking it's all about you, then you haven't looked in the mirror rightly <laughs> at mm. all. And I'm, not, I'm saying, like, if you do read the Bible, walk up your chest, you know, because, you know, I'm not trying to say, like, we're all victims as Christians, because we are more than conquerors. But it's where our victory comes from and our source of our confidence comes from. And if it's anything but the grace of God, then it's a very flimsy uh, place to stand. And it, and you'll be found out very fast. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> So what, um, so you said you had that, you know, quote, come to Jesus night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was, what was the next few weeks like for you? Like, where'd you, where'd you go from there? Um, I really just kind of just leached on to my dad. Um, I, uh, was still... How old are you at this point, by the way? I was 21. Um, I was working for a CNC company machine, um, and it wasn't the, um, glorious side of the job. I was the guy that was scraping off the tar and the metal pieces from the inside. Mm. And I would leave work every day with like metal splinters in my fingers and my hands. And um, so that was one of the most humbling jobs. And I still today am grateful to work there. Um, A friend of mine from college uh, gave me the job. And uh, but every single time I left work, I would go straight to my dad's bicycle shop and just hang out with him and his friends and just kind of like learning through their example and just kind of seeing how they talked and how they interact with people, mm. um, trying to read the Bible uh, <laughs> for the first time. And then um, literally two weeks into this, it was uh, when I got an email from uh, one of my mentors. His name is Athel Barnes. And in, in, no, it's not. I used to jokingly say about his name, you know, it's like saying a hole with a lisp. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not cussing <laughs> when I say his name. He's a South African guy. He has a crazy story with him and his wife, like how they moved to the United States from South Africa after going entirely bankrupt. Hmm. And he was an engineer, and now he's a pastor of a church in Kansas City. Um, and he just was the leader of the YWAM school that I went to. And he said, hey, I'm doing a mission school out here in Hawaii. And I saw mission school in Hawaii. I did not read anything else in the email. And so I was like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. So how many are there? This is the DTS in yeah. Hawaii, right? Yeah. How many uh, YWAM bases are there in Hawaii? Uh, that's a good question. I know there's one in Maui and I know there's an uh, there's probably three or four okay. in the islands. Yeah, I have some, uh, I have some good friends who who did their DTS and and uh, I think or no, they did their DTS in a few places, but they were stationed in Hawaii. Yeah, for uh, for a few years. 
or a year, something like that. Yeah. yeah Melinda and Tanner, you can correct me on this. Oh, no. I mean, they're all over the place, and they're popping up and getting torn down everywhere. And so it's just, they're like... Uh, they're like small churches in a way, and, and not to say that they're because no offense, YWAM, your ecclesiology for the most part is terrible, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, um, but they kind of pop up and go down. Hmm. But and you know, I'll, I'll definitely say like, you know, I'm grateful for my experiences there. I am, and there's still some leaders in YWAM like Verms and others that I still considered like dear friends to this day but yeah it, it was uh you know the, like i always said it depends on how much coffee i had and you know how many you know experiences flood my head that morning <laughs> depends on like what feedback i give you <laughs> gotcha gotcha <laughs> and i mean i mean that's just true of life yeah we're gonna have like YWAM has reputations, pros, cons. It's been powerful in people's lives. Yeah, it's also so broad. Like it yeah. just depends on who's running this the camp, right? Oh yeah, and it's like people having church experiences, no different because they can go to one. And it's kind of funny because like Baptist churches, especially in the United States, usually have the most negative rap. It's like, oh, I had a bad church experience, and it's usually like, and it was a Baptist church, yeah. <laughs> and so it's. Uh, uh, but you can walk in one Baptist church and absolutely it'll be hell on earth. And the other one you can walk into, it's like, oh my gosh, like it's, this is incredible. Like a mm. loving community. These people truly, you know, have not only sound theology, but they love me. Like it's like a family. And, and I was saying like, if, in, if you find any church that's like solid biblically and they love you, you know, my gosh. Don't leave. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a gift. It really is. But um uh but just kinda say, you know, that the ecclesiology was terrible. Like my entire time in YOM, I was v- never really encouraged to join a church hmm. because you were kind of seen as like, well, you know, you're doing missions, you know, all the time. You're you know, which basically just means you're doing evangelism if you are doing it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you got your Thursday night gatherings and, uh, in pretty much you got your teaching throughout the week. And, and so therefore kind of like by Sunday rolls around, you're like, well, heck, I've done all these spiritual exercises all week long. <laughs> so why do I got to go to a church on Sunday? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and another like YWAM base, it was, they encouraged us not to go to a church unless they gave to you or funded you missionally. Hmm. And that's not good <laughs> either. And so it was just, um, it really wasn't until I went to Bible college that um, I learned how bad of a warped view of the church I really truly had. Um, and uh, and I remember it was Jason Deucing's class to church. And I remember leaving class every day crying, not like physically walking to class crying, but as soon as I got in my car, I just started sobbing because I just like, oh my gosh, I had such a warped view of the local church. Hmm. And, um, and you know, <laughs> it, it was uh, it, it was something that, you know, needed to be done. Yeah. For sure. So then, uh, so you spend a bunch of, a bunch of time in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um at what point did you start thinking you should go to seminary? 
or get interested because you told me a little bit about how you got into theology. Yeah. And and for for people who are listening, a little bit of context, you're like reading dense books every <laughs> single time I see, see you. And I'm constantly popping off questions to you like, hey, can you, natural law theory, walk me through that again and stuff like that. So you're, you're extremely well-read. Thank I, you. <laughs> from what I can tell, one of the one of the better well-read people here so far. Thank you. And I have not been here long, so I might revise that, but <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're, you're, you're very thoughtful about a lot of um, theological topics. Mm. How did you get involved in all that? I th- it was, I was on a, um, it really came from, it was a long process of reading, studying my Bible, especially in South Africa, because um, the more I was teaching the Bible in South Africa and the more questions would come up, I realized just how in over my head in some these theological issues I was. And I didn't know necessarily where to go. And because usually the response that the people in the circles I was with was like, well, you have the Holy Spirit, that's enough. And if you read the New Testament, it, it's enough to get you saved, but it's not, <laughs> but the Holy Spirit equips the body of the church to help equip the saints. And I was not that well equipped. <laughs> and so um, I didn't know about commentaries. I didn't know about systematic theologies. I And still, like, theology was kind of like a bad word in a lot of the circles I was in. Hmm. And um, it really wasn't until, um, like, reading guys like David Platt, then Francis Chan. Fran Chan. Fran Chan. And, and it kind of, like, whet my appetite for it more. And then I remember reading uh, Andy Stanley's book, Deep and Wide. And I remember the time when I first read it, I loved it. I remember thinking to myself, this is the greatest book on the church I've ever read because it was like I've never read anything about the church before, so it was like brand new to me. And then um, got a hold of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology when I was. Um, and this is about when I was in Kansas City uh, working for another YWAM organization called Team Extreme, and I just started reading it and started devouring it. And uh, the more and more, like I like. I actually got in trouble for reading my Bible too much <laughs> at times uh, when we would go on mission trips. It, and I was told, like, you know, if you read uh, too much of the Bible, you dry up. If you have too much of the Holy Spirit, you blow up. And I remember just, like, immediately just feeling this yank in my chest of, like, that is wrong. <laughs> yeah. People are saying this. Yes. <laughs> People are saying this to me. You, you got pushback for reading the Bible too much. Yeah. Good night. Be, and, and granted, like, and I'm in like my mid mid twenties, and we all know how mid people in their mid twenties are. We think, you know, we read a few books on a subject, we're experts, <laughs> and so I, even though like I was reading the Bible a lot, I know that there was a part of my spirit at the times that probably was coming off as prideful and um, not necessarily uh, the 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 cage stage gets us all exactly <laughs> that was exactly it. like i was just a cage stage bible student and and everybody was just like you need to just you know you need to go to seminary you need to do this and it wasn't necessarily in the tone of like you're a heretic you need to go to seminary and get cleaned up it was you obviously love this stuff and are driven by it you know you just you're not one of us you might as well just go <laughs> go mm. to seminary mm. and um I uh, and I remember applying to Spurgeon College in Kansas City, what used to be Midwestern Bible College, 
And I was so scared of turning in my application because I didn't think I was going to get in because I got kicked out of college in my early 20s. And so I was already terrified to show this transcript to them. And I remember talking to the kind of the student advisor. I remember saying like, hey, my college transcript is a nightmare, but can I give you my high school transcript and just say, hey, I'm starting over? <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, sure. And of course, that didn't fly for long. And I was in classes, already enrolled in three classes at the time. And I remember getting a phone call because I was dating a girl in Wichita, Kansas at the time. And I was driving to Wichita and I got the phone call from the school saying, hey, just want you to know we're in a room right now praying whether or not you should even be here because my transcript was that bad. Wow. And and they said, just wait a couple of days. Don't go to any classes um, and we'll let you know shortly. So those were the longest two days of my life. <laughs> and it, and I might even be under-exaggerating the time frame. It'd probably been like four days. But I, it just I, it felt like forever, whether at the time it was. And uh, they called me back and said, hey, we've been talking to your professors. We've been talking to the students. You know, you obviously have a lot, like a, you know, you're paying attention in class. You're doing all the assignments. So you were taking classes. Yes. I was already two weeks into taking classes when I got this call. What? Yeah. (laughs) And I just remember just kind of like, even though I wasn't like reformed in my theology yet, I just remember just kind of thinking in the car, like, God, if you want me to go to school, then... I will be there. And if not, then I'll just be up to wherever else you take me. Um, And so that was kind of what got me in and got the phone call after that a lot of time and and said, hey, you're in. Don't screw this up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. But once I did get in, it... I think a lot of it was when I really started really accumulating books. It, it was part, I loved the material because I was fascinated with the Bible and with theology, and I wanted to rightly understand it and teach it. Yeah. And then another part of it was insecurity because I felt like, and, and, it, and it was right insecurities because I was surrounded by everybody. I was smarter and more well-read than I was. And I wanted to at least be able to be in those conversations and not look stupid. <laughs> and so, um, but even over time, it's just like every book I read and then I would hear conversations like, oh, this is what Calvin said. This is what uh, Michael Horton said, or this is what this other guy said. And I was just go and just read all their books. And that's yeah. kind of how it all started <laughs> and still do it. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, so you went to is Spurgeon College? Yeah, Spurgeon College. And then did you go directly from your undergrad to here? I did not. Um, as soon as I graduated, um, during this time I was in my undergrad, I was youth pastoring at a church. Um, it was uh, Grace Point Baptist Church. And then I was uh, working as a PE coach for part of a semester. And then I also was working at the bookstore at the seminary. And so I was just absolutely... Not, sh- not this seminary. No, 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 no. It was at Midwestern Baptist okay. Gotcha. Seminary. And uh, I was really just kind of just like running myself into the ground <laughs> and just 
spiritually, mentally, and everything else. And I was dying to get back into the missions. And um, uh, about a couple of weeks before I graduated, um, I went on a short-term trip to Uganda with a group that was called um, Better Reach. And the way how their organization was set up was that it was a predominantly doctors and nurses going into these remote villages in Africa. And for an entire week, they would treat everyone in the surrounding villages for free. And then they would also invite these pastors to train pastors for the entire week as well. So you, these pastors were getting like a week-long conference. Mm. And I was invited to teach biblical theology in, um, uh, on this trip. And so it was kind of like my audition to, for a job afterwards. Right. And, um, and so went there, loved everything about the trip. It was probably my, to this day, probably my favorite mission trip I've ever been on in my life. How long were you there for? Uh, just two weeks. So oh. it wasn't even long, but it, it was just like for me teaching pastors, it was as almost as if like all the stars aligned for me of this is what I love to do. This is what I'm created to do. Hmm. And all of the, in pray, you know, the, all the pastors there kind of like solidify that gift saying like, Hey, you're on like you, this is your gift. And so it was that, you know, sense of satisfaction of finally, you know, doing what you love the most and then having the body come around you and solidify, yes, this is it, you know, and, um, that was, that was it. And I, I really, it was like a taste of heaven for me, <laughs> if yeah. I could be honest. And then, um, so we did that for a week, the doctors and, uh, most of the pastors left and went back to Alabama. That was where they were from after the first week. And then me and Mike McCord, who I ended up working alongside with, with mission element for the next year and a half. Um, and so then after that, me and Mike would just keep going back to Uganda and training pastors and doing uh, mission work there. So that's what I ended up doing for the next year. So you went there, you went back a bunch of times? Yeah. yeah. Wow. How many times in all? You know? Three or four. Gotcha. Yeah. And there were longer stints than when we first went, like a week. It's like sometimes we like two, three, four weeks at okay. a time. So, and that, those were. Some, I mean, I still have, there's still a part of my heart there. Mm. And I know I get asked a lot, like, hey, are you going back to Uganda? And and I would definitely say my heart's kind of divided because I see the need in the West, because the way how my brain functions is like, I love Western philosophy. Everyone in Africa doesn't care. (laughs) 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 They, you know, they're not impacted through from Enlightenment philosophers and, the, you know, Immanuel Kant and yeah. these other guys. They, you know, in Africa, they've never been exposed or, you know, to those things. And I love apologetics and stuff like that. So a part of me really wants to be stationed long-term in, in the U.S. or in the West. Um, it's one of the reasons why I st- went back to seminary is because I want to equip myself for teaching platforms here. And I'll still have a heart, like I said, in Africa and training pastors overseas. And I still want to be able to go back and even be a better teacher than I was in my mm. prior um, um, trips there. 
And so that's the long-term goal for sure. Um, but yeah, that's the, it's kind of like, you know, be like, I would love to be a pastor of a local church here. And then even, cause I think, and something I have picked up from the pastors when I was there was that they wanted a pastor to train them, not some academic egghead. Hmm. And and not saying that, you know, there's not a place for, you know, professors that aren't pastors, but just for the people I was reaching, that was what they were mo- most wanting. And even though I had like experience as a youth pastor, which, you know, I know a lot of people listening is like, well, that's basically being a junior pastor. It was not, <laughs> it's not really, but the things I did experience as a youth pastor, I, w- I would definitely say, open my eyes to what real pastor work was like. Yeah. Youth, it's a, uh, it's funny because youth pastors, uh, it's a strange category here. Yeah. It's not one back home. Um, in my, my brand of churches, we have nothing like that. Yeah. We have pastor, we have one paid position. It's called the pastor. <laughs> Sometimes your church gets two. Uh-huh. That's it. All the, everyone else's elders or deacons, they're all volunteer positions. Um, it's just a different, yeah. Dutch reformed churches. Yeah. And granted, I, I'll definitely say like, that's, I mean, you don't find youth pastors in the Bible, <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and and to be honest, it's like I'm not really uh, dogmatic either side, you know. Yeah. I do – I remember hearing like how Redeemer Presbyterian Church did it and just loving that model of having just solid college students invest in the high school students yeah. spiritually and – and be their own role models. I, I remember just listening to that thing and dude, that's so sick. I love that. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, I that's... totally sounded more like a surfer in that <laughs> one sentence. I've had this entire <laughs> podcast. That's but, uh, that's Tim Keller's church, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, good old Presby's. Oh yeah. They, <laughs> I, I always jokingly say I was, was like a closet Presbyterian <laughs> and, 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 I, and I almost did like, um, even when I was teaching biblical theology, of course, it's if you're covenant the like have covenant theology that is your bread and butter and it's like your strongest arguments for the way how you you know do baptism the lord's supper and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i remember almost being so persuasive it almost did swing pca um when i was in africa and even the one of the pastors I was teaching with in Uganda, my first trip was a Presbyterian, and he heard me teach and explain. He said, "Cam, you're one of us. Just you know, <laughs> sign the dotted line, and you'll be one of us, brother." And I was saying, like, "Yeah, I would love that. You guys definitely are smarter than us. You definitely have more money than us. I, there's everything that sounds better. <laughs> I was like, your books are better, but there, I was like, but I still have like a few questions with baptism. I said, everything else." Uh, I was like, I'm in yes, amen to Westminster Confession, except on one point. <laughs> so I was like, but I mean, there's obviously, a, there's, a, there's a confession for that. It's called the London Baptist. Confession. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, and and even now, like the more I'm studying, like I'm even wondering, like, okay, like I know I'm reformed, but how reformed am I? I remember saying that to somebody recently. That's literally my existential question. Ever. Yeah, I know. And so it's just like. Yeah, but then that's why I'm here in seminary, and and I'm a church attendance at a really great church, and yeah, and I'm here to figure that out now. <laughs> so it's a good place to kind of like, you know, still be molded in good ways. I totally. would say one of the things I love about um, Southern is I honestly feel like they have the balance of 
they're committed to Orthodox Christian teaching, mm-hmm. and they've fought for that hard over yes. the past few decades. Good grief. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, his- the history here with the conservative resurgence is, is it's a bloody, messy history, but I like where the seminary is. Amen. But, but they have a, they've got a wide variety of students here. Their professors cheerfully disagree with each other <clears throat> on a few things. Mm-hmm. And like, I honestly feel like they've got the balance just about right. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to find a, you're going to find a reasonable position on every kind of reasonable disagreement here. Yeah. Like there's a bunch of sort of quasi closet uh, baby sprinklers here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and there's a lot of hardcore coming to theology guys. There's way much more dispensational, you know, there's, yeah. you're going to get a whole and I love that. I love the fact yeah. that I can sit down and talk with people who I genuinely disagree with, who are very bright, and, yeah. and we can, you know, hack through a couple of issues. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a joy. Like I'm I'm so thrilled that I'm here, and I've you know I I've a slightly different position on hell than some of the people here, and it's cool. Like <laughs> and about, me. Well, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And, um, and you know that's not my identity yeah. by any stretch. It's just a weird thing that that's come up over the past few months. Yeah, um, it's like my doctrine I'm least interested in, but I just happen to have to study uh, it a bit. It, it makes two of us with that like the least interest because it's like I remember reading Francis Chan's book Erasing Hell, and the very first sentences mm. in the book was. Um, if you're looking forward to reading this book, you have issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's really true. Well, there is, yeah, and sometimes it gets, yeah, and, and I, you know, I don't want to talk about this too much because yeah. I, or talk about it completely because it's kind of <laughs> one of the two, right? There's a yeah. dangerous area of like not talking about it too much, mm-hmm. and I don't even have a position. I have ways I lean, but yeah. it's like there is sometimes with the um, some eternal conscious torment folks, mm-hmm. which is you know the, the classical orthodox view. Yeah, they take a weird glee in like cementing mm. that and it's like bro yeah. that should be like in tears every single time you articulate yeah. that doctrine because that's i mean and the and you're articulating something about the sovereignty and holiness of god and yeah. that's good mm-hmm. but it should still make you terrified that Absolutely. that is that that is what you are convicted is what the bible says exactly and and i i the the fact that some people like you said, and, and you you pegged it. It's like it's like the doctrine of hell is something like, you know, well, I'm not going there, so who cares about anyone else? It's kind of like that attitude. Yeah, and that is to me like the biggest shame of the Christian that holds or, or acts that way, because it shows me immediately you have a very low view of the grace of God, and you have a very low view of God's holiness, mm. and. And you almost act as if like grace was something like you've earned. Mm. And if you read anything in the scripture, that is the furthest thing you get. It's this that hell is something that we all deserve naturally because we're all born into this world under sin, and we all have sinful hearts that are at war against God. And when you are a treasonous human in a kingdom, you deserve death. And we are all born in God's kingdom of the universe and we were all born treason treasonous and enemies and so therefore it's it takes and, and the good news in the gospel is that the king is offering forgiveness for treasoners and it's not that Jesus came to die for not you know for people who were born loving him he died for people that were born hating him yeah and currently are hating him and that's the whole point of Romans 5 
is that is not that Jesus came to you know die for his friends. Like anybody can you know believe that someone would die for a friend. Even pagan people would die for their friends. But Jesus came to die for his enemies, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just ludicrous when you think about it long enough. Mm-hmm. And and it's like I know that if I stood before God, and I know I've said this to people and it offended them, if I stood before God right now, apart from the grace and the atonement of the Holy Spirit, and he condemned me to hell, I know that he would be just and right in doing that. Mm-hmm. And... And I say that with a clear conscience. It's not me just trying to say this as a speech. I just know how wicked my heart is. I know how wicked I was, and I know how wicked my heart still can be. <laughs> mm. And I know that if God said, you know, you know, away from me for I never knew you, there would be a part of me that would say, you're right. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a... I don't know how to say this quite right. This is going to come out wrong. There's, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And that almost gives me a, a weird piece about assurance of salvation mm-hmm. because it's like, well, what's the option? Mm-hmm. If I could pull myself up by my boots, my bootstraps, I'd be terrified because I didn't, I wouldn't know if I was. Yeah. But if I'm not saved, Jack, all I'm doing about it anyways. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to rest in God's assurance because he's doing it anyway. He's doing it for, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. There's nothing that I'm doing that's earning God's love for me. Mm-hmm. So either freak out about it and be able to do nothing about it or just rest in the fact that God's got me. And if he doesn't, that's his prerogative too, right? Yeah. So yeah. And, and there's only one option, which is serve him. So I might as yeah. well do that because I know that's going to bring happiness. It's almost like... It's almost if you want to get really, really cynical about it, mm-hmm. I think serving God is probably the happiest way to live, even mm-hmm. if ultimately I'm never loved by him, mm-hmm. which is a weird, twisted way to think about it. And if you're thinking along that lines, it means you're, you're probably you're saved. You're probably yeah. right with God, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, but yeah, exactly. The whole point of the gospel is that we're, if we're not working to earn God's love. We're mm-hmm. working because God loves us. And that is the best motivator ever. Yeah. And and it's the most sustainable um, motivation as well. And, you know, and I know like, like you were saying, like, like, you know, even though like we're on two different sides of this, I, like I, like I said, on the, on the, on, on the, the gospel. Hell, yeah. On the very specific uh, issue. Yeah. On the very, <laughs> on the issue of hell itself. It's like, you know, and now, like I said, it's like, you know, one of my heroes in the faith, John Stott, holds the position that you're studying. <laughs> and, yeah. and so it's like, I, it, it's, you know, there's still a, you know, like you're still holding to the holiness of God. You're still holding to, there is still judgment mm-hmm. in the end. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and like I said to you, it's like, if there was a doctrine that I would be happy to be wrong on, eternal conscious torment would be one. Right. <laughs> I was like, yeah. if I'm wrong on this, I'd be like, thank God. Yeah. But on the, I mean, obviously, we just know where we come down and why. Yeah. And, and the thing is, we can do so cheerfully. Like, yeah. I have a good a guy on the podcast, um, Sam. He was like, mm. he wrote his paper on hell. Yeah. And he's 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 going to send it to me, and I think. Like, I have to bug him for it again. But he's going to yeah. send it to me, and, and you know, he's going to – he argued against it. And mm-hmm. he's like, ah, oh, but I got some really interesting arguments for the for the annihilationist side. Or, or and limited. I know Sam, yeah. too, and he's – 
I, I think he's brighter than me, so he. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, yeah, Zem's a really solid guy. Yeah, I, I enjoy yeah, talking with him. Yeah, but yeah, and you know, it's uh, it, it's good that we're still brothers and friends. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's and it's nice, and 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 I think it's even though like like you were saying earlier, like it's such a blessing to be here at Southern Seminary. It's like. It's so nice that the student body is pretty diverse with mm-hmm. their beliefs, and so you're not just yeah. going to get like a bunch of like, you know, people that constantly agree with you and yes men on every single issue. But rather, it's like you're with people that have very many different convictions in you on issues, and then they're there to sharpen you, yeah, and even correct you mm-hmm. <laughs> in times if you know you're wrong, yeah. And like, there's a there's a in a pastoral context, in mm-hmm. a church context, uh, I think us quote unquote theologians have to be careful, right? Yeah. Don't be careful what you say. Don't go spouting off this line. Like you can be a stumbling block very easy. And I've been there, right? Yeah. It's particularly like there's been times I've known them vividly where I've discussed canon mm-hmm. and hurt people mm-hmm. because I articulated some of the really complex sides of how we got the Bible mm-hmm. the way it is. And they're very unsettling if you don't have the whole picture. Yeah. Even if you have the whole picture, it's still a little bit like, it's like 400 years. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you know, you, you, once you look at, you know, once you're in the world of like text criticism and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you just learn to be comfortable with the way the Holy Spirit put this all together. And it's not quite yeah. the way I'd like to do it, but whatever. But yeah. I've hurt people by not articulating that well and just kind of spreading off. But in seminary, mm-hmm. this is a place for us to hack through ideas difficult yeah. with absolute clarity and like reckless abandon because mm-hmm. it's a bunch of people all studying the same thing mm-hmm. in order to like do it graciously, but yeah. do it clearly and yeah. and properly, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. which is, you know, academia, let's go. <laughs> I know. And it's so funny because like, I can know, like, I remember, remember the first time I went to seminary and this was when I was in uh, Kansas City and I was, you know, Bible college. But into my honest shame, I had no idea how academics worked. Mm-hmm. This is tell you how stupid I was. <laughs> and so because I went to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I told people I was going to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary because I was in the same building and I was auditing a lot of their classes. And so, but it was really because I didn't understood the difference between grad school and undergrad. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm sitting here embarrassed to confess that. And, uh, but it wasn't like a full fib because I did actually take a couple of master level classes when I was there, but, you know, I I didn't graduate with a Midwestern Baptist Theological degree. Yeah. But uh, the people that would tell that would go there, they're like, oh, so you're a cemetery, not seminary. Because it was literally like, so seminary is where your faith goes to die. Yeah. And and sadly, I remember reading... Um, uh, is it Piper's book? No, it's not Piper's book. It was um, uh, Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Faith. Okay. And he uses Charles Templeton as like his case study. And for those who are listening, I know who Charles Templeton is. He was a... Um, stage evangelist like Billy Graham. He actually toured with Billy Graham mm. and toured with Billy Graham. And everybody who was listening to the two would say, Templeton is going to be the guy. Yeah. And he was way more articulate than Billy Graham. He was way more of a gifted orator than Billy Graham. And he started wrestling with these doubts. 
and he didn't know what to do with them. So he went to seminary and he went to Princeton. And for those who don't know the history of Princeton, um, if you go to there uh, and go a tour there, they would all tell you once when B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge were laid into the ground, or A.A. Hodge, all sound doctrine and the views of biblical inerrancy were buried with them. Hmm. And so he went there after their deaths, and so they were not there to really encourage you to believe and trust Scripture, but rather see Scripture through a very, very pessimistic and they called a critical, but I'll say is a cynical lens. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the God never was an author of scripture and all these others. And so he actually became an atheist when he was there. He just had his faith ripped to shreds. And so when I went off to seminary Bible college, I re- because I read Scribble's book when I was in YWAM, I remember thinking to myself, oh, crud, what am I getting myself into? Really, eh? Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah. And so I kind of came in just absolutely like, oh, man, am I going to revert mm. right back, convert back to atheism when I'm here? Because I'm, you know, I, I was very, I was a fragile little puppy when I went, yeah. <laughs> kind of like I said earlier. Yeah. But um, but the fact that I went to a school that, you know, their, their mission statement is for the church, yeah. and they all were ascribing to, you know, biblical authority and inerrancy and fallibility, whichever term you like. Uh, <laughs> uh, and... And I understand, like, infallibility now has, like, a lot of negative connotations because of neo-orthodoxy. But um, I know, if you say it and you, you mean, like, the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative <laughs> on all things, inclu- like, not just salvation, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's history. It's not just these fabled tales, to, yeah. you know, for good behavior. You know, then we can agree. But, um, yeah. But, yeah. And that's um, kind yeah. of what you're saying is, like, it's hard for people, I think, who aren't in the academics, mm-hmm. the Christian academic space, to kind of get a barometer mm-hmm. for what's, like, conservative, what's quote-unquote liberal. Yeah. And so, and I know for me, it's it's, it's, oh, it's still a constant learning experience to get my terms right and to yeah. place certain ideas. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and, and back, I come from a very, 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 very conservative church. Yeah. Um, God bless every one of them. I love <laughs> them. Like they're beautiful people. I have learned so much from them. I have a massive amount of respect for my pastor. Yeah. Um, but I hold a considerable number of quote unquote liberal views, uh, mm-hmm. sort of in their eyes. But coming mm-hmm. here was helpful to see true liberalism in the course that I'm taking, mm-hmm. um, which is Southern Baptist Heritage Faith Admission, Mission, whatever, yeah. that jumble of the words. But <laughs> uh, I'm with uh, Dr. Hall, who is like, I have an incredible amount of respect for that guy. And he's walking us through where Southern was a few mm-hmm. decades ago and the conservative resurgence and stuff. And man, like proper true liberalism, I, ne- I had no appreciation for what that, what appreciation in, in almost a, a, like you got a, a miraculous view of yeah, I, I, what they actually believe. Yeah, and it's yeah. like so. Here's I, I have I just pulling this up here. This mm-hmm. this is really cool. Uh, some Holyfield uh, was a dude who did a test. Uh, he did a not a test. He did a survey of st- of students at Southern uh, over a period of time. I think it was in the s- late seventies. Oh no, dude, <laughs> dude. So this is some of the stuff like. 
um, some of the stuff, this is at Southern, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I know God really exists and I have no doubt about it. Diploma students, 100%. PhD students, 63%. Uh, first year MDiv, 74. Final year MDiv, 65. Wow. Uh, Jesus is the divine son of God and I have no doubt about it. PhD students, again, 63% actually would affirm that statement. Uh, the devil e- actually exists. Definitely not true. 15%. Wow. People said that. Um, there's life beyond death. Completely true. Only 53% of PhD students would affirm that. Wow. Um, Jesus walked on water. Completely true. Uh, first year MDivs, 59% of people coming in would say <laughs> that. And then 44% of people when they left would affirm wow. that. So less than half of final year MDiv students didn't believe Jesus walked on water. So just just basic propositional yeah. truth claims of, of the Gospels. Um, Man. Yeah, it's just like, and there's a whole bunch of here of just like, and then the PhD um, and uh, THM ones are like, yeah, the PhD, THM ones, only 22% of, P- of them would affirm that Jesus walked on water. Wow. And like, there's basic, like, I mean, that one, mm-hmm. like you could, you might have some weird way of spinning that, and that's still quasi-orthodox, I guess. But, like, there's basic, like, theistic claims here. Yeah. Like, I believe God exists. About almost half of PhD students were a little queasy on the subject. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's insane. Yeah. I, I remember reading it, like, in some apologetic book um, about... He, he basically... Tr- I forgot who the author was, but he basically tried to give, like, a scientific explanation for all the miracles in the Bible. And a part of me was just like... I see what you're trying to do, yeah. But this is, sounds even more ridiculous than <laughs> believing in the miracle. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and it's exactly what like Schleimacher, Boltmann, and Boltmann, you know, what they were trying to do, which is that they're they basically what liberal theology tried to do is really try to preserve the Christian faith for the 21st century. Yeah. And he, well, even at the time it was the 18th century, 19th century today. And really what it was, was that it was pure syncretism at the end of the day, which just meant that you basically take on the culture as it is. And, and, and really in doing that, there was no Christianity left when they were finished. And like the way how um, Jay Gresham Meacham put it in his book, Liberalism and Christianity, you were left with a completely different religion at the end of the day. You're not even left with Christianity. Um, I need to reread that book. It's good. (laughs) Yeah, I read it when I didn't understand what liberalism was properly. Yeah, yeah. And it was usually an epithet to call some of my ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and... and, and so it, it's like it's an admirable, I guess, pursuit of what they were trying to do. But mm-hmm. you can't – and even as an atheist, it was just like – so basically you're just me with Christianese language <laughs> mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And so like your ethics are almost identical. So there's no difference between – you will see sex between an orthodox or a professing Christian – and somebody who completely thinks Christianity is the biggest joke. And you would see, you know, and to be honest with you, like even if somebody, because I know sound theologians, even some of my, like people I admire, that would hold to a creation evolution standpoint. Mm -hmm. And 
I would, and I would say that they're Orthodox conservative Christians because of everything else they write. Um, and I know some of my friends jokingly, because I'm an old Earth guy, they would say, "Well, Cam's a creation evolutionist," and I'm like, "Not necessarily. Even though if you're an old Earth guy, there's a form of evolution that you're going to have to logically ascribe to." Right. And I would definitely say, you know, microevolution is legit, but macroevolution, like the trend, you know, jumping from one species to another, hmm. uh, I just have a lot of issues with that, and the fossil record has a lot of issues with that, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so. But even if, like, somebody went even further, like, left down the evolutionary road, you know, I still – if it, it depends, like, your full body of your work of yeah. whether or not I'll ascribe to you liberalism or not. Yeah. Um, it's it's the, same, the same set of tools that someone might be having could be used if you kind of bear it out and be like, oh, you're really trying to strip supernatural elements yeah. from the Bible. Yeah. Or someone would be like, no, I'm really working really hard to preserve an orthodox – understanding of the Bible yeah. using a different toolkit than yeah. maybe you are, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even like some of the guys that would ascribe to creation evolution would still affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Oh, yeah. When you yeah. And kind of have to. It's yeah, sort you of have important. to. That's, yeah, exactly. And they would affirm Jesus walking on water and other places. Yeah. And so it's like it, yeah. it, it, you got to take it all as a whole. And like so therefore, like for me personally, it's like if we can agree that God created everything out of nothing, spoke everything into existence. There was a literal Adam and Eve. And I know even some of my creation evolutionist guys I just said would deny this. Say, like, Adam just, you know, represents all humanity and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I just think you were in the very, very slippery ground, especially when you read <laughs> Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, because it says they're one man. They're through one man in those passages. And so logically, if you say there's many Adams, you can also logically say that there can be many Christs at the end. And yeah. no Orthodox Christian would hold that view. And so it's, um, but, and I would, and I even affirm a talking snake, which is weird enough. So yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so it's like, you, you when I talk to non-Christians and atheists, like, and they, want to go through the science debate, I, I try to tell them, like, you're going at it the wrong way, because it's not that science and Christianity are at war with each other. Um, a really good book on this is um, uh, The Controversy of the Ages. Um, it, it, it does a very, very solid job of showing, like, the um, combat hypothesis uh, or the combat thesis that Christianity and science are at war with each other is actually not as like hmm. this long drawn out history that is portrayed. Um, but really it's like, did Jesus one, did he really exist? Was there's overwhelmingly amount of evidence that he did. And two, did he fault that did everything he say was true? Did it come true? And then what everything it said was true. And did he physically resurrect from the grave? Those are where my starting points normally are. Yeah. And, and the thing is, though, if you truly believe that a God created everything out of nothing, spoke everything into existence, and he is not absent from creation like deism or open theism, but he is actually intricately involved, but not so much that he's confused with creation like pantheism or panentheism. He's not dependent upon creation. You Miracles are no longer that big of a stretch to believe in yeah. at, when that's your foundation. Because when you believe that God created everything out of nothing and he is personal with his creation, 
miracles are not that hard to believe in anymore. Yeah. And but if you believe in an evolutionary like process and even if you take like a Freudian view of like the history of religion or Hegelian way of seeing history of religion, like we all started as animists and then we became polytheists and then we slowly became monotheists, you know, which is such a, a, a arrogant way to see other world religions. <laughs> it's just like saying like, we're just fairly evolved in you, which is very, very uh, offensive and rightly so to see it that way. And I don't think any professing Christian would say they're further evolved than a Hindu. Um, or yeah, an animus really in Africa. And so that's not a helpful way to see religion or history of religion either. And nor are we trying to cover up the guilt from our, our like, you know, the uh, caveman, like, slaughtering the king and then all of a sudden deifying the king to kind of overcome the guilt of killing the king. <laughs> and so yeah. that's kind of how Freud would put it in, like, the uh, future of the illusion. And so it's – when you have those as your foundations, then – all religions at the end of the day, it's just kind of like what flavor you want Yeah. at the end of the day. And so if you take special revelation out, you logically were just going to have to say that all religions at the very end of the day, it's just like well, what flavor you like the most. Hmm. And, and that's one of the reasons why I still today affirm historical Orthodox Christianity is because I believe that God physically intervenes in human history and that history testifies to that. And so, amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And it's when you're talking with someone who has some odd ideas, mm -hmm. it's worth having the conversation, letting them chat for a bit mm -hmm. <clears throat> because you might find that that person deeply respects and has that, those, the convictions of, Absolutely, of yeah. a solid Orthodox base. And they're just working through some complex stuff that you haven't heard before with the genealogical atom or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. He's not the heretic you think. Yeah. And and then there are people who, yeah, when you tease them out, it's just like, you, you've you got nothing here, man. You're just <laughs> you're trying to slap some morals and fancy them up a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, <clears throat> and it's like I was like, like for example, Trimper Lomond III, uh, Old Testament scholar that I deeply respect. I even recommend his books, but me and him will see the history of Adam very differently. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I'm like, come on, man, like you're so close being so right. <laughs> yeah. and, and he would look at me and say like the same thing. And so, yeah. but because of the more broad way how he writes and the way how he, you know, really truly, you know, believes in historical Orthodox Christianity, even aside from that, I would still say, yeah, he's a Christian. And mm. He he's in my he's on my team. Yeah, but it, it, but yeah, it's just like it, for me, it's like to call someone like a liberal or something like that. Like kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's like you have to do a lot of work to get there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it, it's it's a whole body of thought. Yeah, yeah. But well, Kim, mm -hmm. I uh, I have a meeting that I have to make yeah. pretty soon, so we're gonna have to cut this chat. This cut this <laughs> chat. <laughs> Short, yeah. Cut this chat short is a fun, fun phrase to say quickly. Uh huh. So uh, I really same. enjoyed chatting with you, man. Yeah, same. Uh, this is really helpful. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, dude. All right. All right. Later. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. 
I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at it's the Volk. Have a good one, guys.